Let us pray for the preached word. Our God and our Father, Lord, we come before you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to cast the cares of the world aside. Lord, that that you would use your preached word today as you have promised us, as an ordinary means of grace for your people and to call sinners to yourself. Lord, we pray that today would be the day of salvation for the lost among us. Lord, we pray that that your preached word would edify your saints on this, your Lord's day. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. to turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 5. Ah, definitely going to need the mic today. I'd ask for you to pray, even as I preach, that the Lord would help my voice to hold out. It is on its, uh, hopefully not its dying embers, but it is, it is, feels like that's close. Mark, chapter 5. The title of today's sermon is Touched by the Son of God. We'll be looking at the second half of chapter 5 in Mark's Gospel. And what we've been looking at from the very first verse of Mark's Gospel, the very first verse, Mark declares to us, he presents to us, this is his goal, this is his ambition, is to make it plain to us that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, that he is truly God, sent from heaven, the only begotten of the Father. And we've seen him thus far displaying his Godness. He is God. We've seen him as Lord of disease and illness, of Lord of physical incapacity, as Lord of the Sabbath. Two weeks ago, as we worked through Mark chapter 4, we saw him as the Lord over the storm. With even his voice, he commanded the the wind and the waves to hush, to be silent, and they were immediately. And then last week, we saw him before us as the Son of God who had authority over even unseen powers. He met a man on the other side of the sea, indwelt, possessed by a demon who referred to himself as legion, for we are many. And and he cast those demons into 2,000 swine who rushed down the cliff to their death. So we've had opportunity, as it were, through the Word of God, to be witnesses of of our Savior demonstrating His power and authority as the Son of God. But what about His person? Theologians distinguish, the Bible distinguishes between the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because Christ is divided, but because we see Him from two different vantage points. We see his work, his accomplishment of redemption. We see all the things that he does to fulfill the Father's purpose for him in seeking and saving the lost and drawing to himself a people for his own possession. And when theologians speak of the person of our Savior, we're thinking about his identity. Who is he? He is the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God. And we we learn something from the text before us today in Mark chapter 5 about the person of our Savior. We've seen his work. 
We've beheld his power, his authority, his glory. But we also look to see, we see today something about his nature. As to his divinity, he is begotten and not made. He is eternally existing. He possesses the full measure of divine attributes. And as to his humanity, he's truly human, born of a virgin, sinless, in fact, unable to sin, perfect in all that he does, a perfect representation of humanity. He is the most truly human because he does not sin. Now, imagine if you needed emergency surgery in order to live. Imagine you needed emergency surgery in order to live, and you schedule an appointment with the world's most renowned and skilled surgeon, but you're warned in advance about this surgeon's bedside manner. How concerned are you about that? You need a surgery to survive. And you know of his incredible skill, but to his patients, he's presented as cold, distant, seemingly unfeeling. But ultimately, it's not his bedside manner you seek, but his skill, his capacity to heal you. But when it comes to our great physician, saints, we are not choosing between power and gentleness. We are not choosing between tender care and authority to heal. And as we've observed his full measure of power and authority, we ought to think about the work of our Savior. We ought to think about the work of the living God incarnated in Jesus Christ. But if that's all we think about, if all we think about is his power and his dominion and his authority and his glory, and we don't recognize the compassionate and tender and gentle way that he deals with sinners, we will not have a complete picture of our Savior. And so one of the things that Mark does for us as he records these events, and so verses 21 and following gives to us this picture, not only the divine power and authority, but something of the person of our Savior. So that's what I hope that we will take away together today. We learn in this text that the Son of God demonstrates his unlimited power and his unlimited authority over illness and death with compassion, tenderness, and gentleness to everyone who comes to him in faith. Our Lord demonstrates his unlimited power, his unlimited authority over illness, over death, over the wind and waves over unseen powers over everything. And he does this with compassion and tenderness and gentleness to everyone who calls upon his name in faith. This is the same Lord Jesus who declared, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. So have that in mind as I read the text to you. As you hear the word of God wash over your ears, listen not only to observe his power and authority, but his manner of dealing with weak and helpless sinners. Take note not only of the fact that the Son of God heals and raises the dead, but pay careful attention to the manner of his person as he delivers men and women from the misery 
of sin and death. Let's read together the Word of God. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately... The flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to them, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing that what had, knowing what had happened to her came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Then he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Notice in the first place, as we contemplate this this illness and and death that presents us to, we have two narratives that, that are necessarily intertwined. Jesus goes off accompanying the ruler of the synagogue to go into his home, and then the events with the woman with the discharge of blood happen while he's on that journey. And then just as he's finished speaking to her, messengers come from the synagogue ruler's house and tell him, there's no point anymore. Your daughter's dead. And as we think about the context for both of these narratives, it's illness and death. And one of the things that's inescapable to us as we think about these two narratives 
is the non-discrimination of illness and death. Illness and death know no rank. They do not discriminate according to someone's social status or economic opportunity. The very first person we encounter in this narrative is Jairus. We're told he's a ruler of the synagogue. This is a man of means. This is a man of authority. This is a man who has financial resources and surely would have had every doctor at his disposal. He has servants of all kind, and yet death has come to his door. Saints, it is not a function only of poverty or economic distress or lower social standing that causes illness and death. Death is no respecter of persons. Death comes to every house, to every man, to every woman. And then we see the very next person that we find in in the scene is this poor woman who has this discharge of blood. The woman, we're told, is now poor. She spent everything that she has. In fact, Mark is not as charitable towards physicians as Luke is in his account. Mark is more cynical. And in their day, surely, just as it is in ours, there are good physicians and there are others who are unscrupulous and will take advantage. And apparently this woman, in pursuit of physical healing, had pursued every opportunity and exhausted every financial resource that she had. And Mark tells us not only was she not any better, she was actually worse. And she had spent all she had not in sinful living, not foolishly. No, she divested herself of all material means in an attempt to get well, searching desperately for relief from her physical suffering. And likely, she was destitute in far more ways than financial. She had spent far more than just money. Think about this. If she had been married, she was very likely no longer married. Very likely, her husband would have put her away because of 12 years of uncleanness. If she were not married, what kind of prospects would she have for marriage in her current condition? The answer is none. She was socially ostracized due to her condition. She was not a suitable prospect for marriage. In fact, she was ceremonially and religiously unclean. She could not go into the public worship of God because of her condition. Her problem was distinctly feminine. No man could have the condition that she had. So here we have a wealthy man, the current buzzword in our day is a man of privilege. And here we have a socially and religiously outcast woman, and sorrow had found them both. Physical distress had found them both. Hardship and calamity had found both of them. I want to make an important note about interpretation. I think it's a matter of importance and even integrity to to, to communicate to you when when I'm using a a method of interpretation to, to disclose, play my cards face up as it were. And what we have in our text before us is our two literal historical accounts of the healing of an illness and the raising of a little girl who is dead. They were literally true. They actually happened. These were historical people. And you have absolutely no duty 
to believe just my words. Your obligation is to believe the word of God, not the voice of a man. But when we witness here our Lord healing an incurable woman and raising a dead girl back to life, even though these are true and literal and historical events, they also function as signs that authenticate the power and the authority and the instruction of our Lord Jesus. And in addition to that, they serve another function. They are types. The physical illness serves as a type, and it points us to the greater reality, the universal reality of sin, the disease of sin. And so just as we've seen earlier in Mark's Gospel, we saw the healing and cleansing of a leper. It was an actual historical literal event. And also, it pointed us to the greater reality. Leprosy often in the scriptures points us as a type to sin in general. And then the healing of this young girl. She was raised from the dead, which serves as a type, pointing us and reminding us of the spiritual deadness by which all of us enter the world. The scriptures tell us that all of us are born, what? Dead in sin. So there's a, there's a spiritual illness and a spiritual deadness that, that is a necessary component of this interpretation of the passage. It is not only just a historical event that describes to us things that, that Jesus did. That is true. But we have a, it's incumbent upon us to interpret this at an even more profound and deeper level, if you will. So the, the system of interpretation recognizing these types is, is consistent with our confession of faith. It's consistent with the Reformed tradition. It's consistent with the rest of Scripture. These events serve to demonstrate our Lord's power over illness and death, but also to demonstrate to us that illness and physical death point us to the reality of sin and death spiritually. And we find here that non-discrimination of illness and death is also true spiritually, isn't it? All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All have rebelled against him. Every single man and woman and child who's ever been born except one is born with a terminal disease called sin. And there's only one cure, one remedy. And it's not found in physicians. It is not found in the flesh. It is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every last one of us, every person who's ever been born with one exception is born dead spiritually. Unless and until the Lord comes and raises such a one, it gives new life, causes him to be born again, that man, that woman will remain dead in sin. And there's a non-discrimination of illness and death that we observe in our text points us to the universal reality of sin and spiritual deadness. But let's notice here something about the manner of our Savior. As we consider the text, we, we, we're confronted here, first of all, <clears throat> with this woman. The first healing that we see chronologically in the text is the healing of this woman who has a discharge of blood. The text tells us it's been for 12 years, and, and, and this theme of the crowd pressing in upon Jesus comes up again and again and again. We've seen that already, haven't we? In fact, such was the crowd that Jesus was forced to get into a boat and, and get some, literally some elbow room 
as he sat up on the sea and taught. Chronologically, he'd gone across the sea, calmed the wind and the waves when a spontaneous storm arose. He cast out legion out of the, the, the demoniac, and now he has sailed back over. He has set foot back into his home country. He's back into the land of Israel. He's in the region of Capernaum. And immediately, he's, he's met by this pressing crowd. Such was the, the density of that crowd that he's being jostled about. And we're confronted with the description of this pitiful woman. We're told she's had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She's suffered much under many physicians. I mean, we can just imagine the kind of remedies that might have been tried. Every lotion and potion known to man, this woman has probably tried. And not only is she not better, she's worse. But notice in verse 27, she's heard reports about Jesus. She hasn't seen him. She's never met him. She's heard of him. She's heard the whispers. She's heard the hype about his healing power. And she comes thinking to herself. She says, this would be something she says probably in her own mind, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Do you recognize that what she's thinking is somewhat superstitious? She's not coming to him with a perfect faith. She's not coming to him with a pure faith, a strong faith. In fact, the text tells us not only is she thinking to herself, I can just touch his garments, I will be made well, but she comes up behind him so that she cannot be seen. She makes her way through the crowd, twisting and turning her shoulders so she could get through just enough to touch the hem of his garment. She'd heard of his power, but did not actually know him. She's she's thinking in in a way that's superstitious. But notice how Jesus responds to her. And and if you were were there, you would have to to kind of chuckle in some way at the events as they're described to us. The crowd is, is pressing in in such a way that this woman has to kind of sneak up behind him, touches the hem of his garment, and immediately she's aware in her own body, in her own person, that the disease is gone. Now imagine the overwhelming mix of relief, of gratitude, of thanksgiving, of awe. Twelve years. This has been her waking thought every day, all day, for twelve years. You ladies can imagine the implications of such a condition on your everyday, ordinary life. Think of the anemia. Think of the weakness of mind and body. And notice how Jesus responds to her. He first responds asking, who touched my garments? And this is the part you have to chuckle. The disciples, Lord, what do you mean, who touched your garments? Everyone touched you. No one didn't touch you because of the nature of the crowd. But that really wasn't what Jesus was asking. It was really more of a question of, who did I touch? 
because he felt power go out from him. And he looks around and he sees what had what who had done it. And just in your in your mind's eye, will you will you look upon this woman and think of what her countenance must have looked like? What kind of a pitiful creature she was in that moment, and fearful now because she's been caught. Thankful that she's healed, but now fearful because she's broken the Levitical law. She's touched a man in her uncleanness. And Jesus doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't admonish her. He doesn't shame her. No, quite the contrary. He says to her daughter, your faith has made you well. He speaks with with language of, of tenderness, familial affection to her. My daughter, your faith has made you well. And she's got to be thinking, what faith? I was afraid to look you in the eye. I was afraid to come from the front. I came to the back on hands and knees and snuck and stole a touch of your garment. What kind of faith? Sufficient faith. Weak faith that was enough. He said, his daughter, it's your faith that's made you well. She came in fear and trembling and fell down before her. Notice our Lord's compassion. Again, our focus here is not upon the woman. Our focus is upon the manner of our Savior. We've seen him with a voice mighty rebuke wind and waves. Imagine the tone of voice when he said, hush. Uh, Imagine the look and the tone of voice that he had when when he said to Legion, get out. Go. But that is not the tone. That is not his demeanor. When he looks at this woman in her fear, in her weakness, and says, daughter, you're okay. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now remember, I said we're having to interpret this on two levels because she's been healed of her physical affliction, but that already happened. She felt that the moment she touched him. But Jesus says, go and be healed of your disease. What disease is he speaking about? It's more than just the discharge of blood. It's her sinful condition. It's her greater peril. See, but I want to notice something else here by way of application. Our culture has gone utterly mad with respect to sex and gender hasn't it? I don't have to convince you of that. And in fact, Christians have reacted to that, and I think even often overreacted to that. But notice, you will will never find a more pure form of masculine strength than when that strength is deployed in the gentle and tender care of a woman. You will not find a more pure and perfect display of masculinity than when that God-given strength is used for the protection and the comfort of one who is weaker. You will not find a more perfect expression of masculinity than we see in the Lord Jesus Christ who speaks with words of tenderness and gentleness, who uses his God-given strength by way of compassion to help one who cannot help herself. 
Dear sisters in Christ, I want you particularly to notice the compassion of your king. I want you to notice that he looks upon a woman his, and calls her a daughter. He looks to you as his sister. He knows your particular vulnerability as a woman. He knows the kind of weaknesses that only you will know. And he does not despise you for those weaknesses. He does not look upon you with impatience or anger or disdain. But rather, he covers your weakness in his own person. What a glorious Savior. And to my brothers, may we take note of our Lord's compassion towards this dear woman. Will we seek to imitate him? Seek to imitate his perfect display of masculine strength? Will we seek to imitate him both in our words and our deeds with our wives, our daughters, our sisters in this fellowship? Young men and boys, look at me. I want you to hear this. God has given you unique strengths as a male. Our culture is teaching you to despise that. Do not do it. Do not listen to that. God has made you a man for a reason. But the most pure and perfect expression of your masculinity is in your ability and your desire and your willingness to protect those in your care. But that takes practice. That takes work. See, it's not your nature. It is not my nature as a man to be gentle. That doesn't come naturally or easily to me. In fact, when we look at the household codes in, in Colossians 3, for example, or in Ephesians 5, 5 and 6, and the Lord says through the apostle, for example, husbands, love your wives. You know what the next sentence is, the next phrase? Do not be harsh with them. Why does he say that? Because our natural tendency, is it not, is to be harsh. And he speaks contrary, speaks against the grain of our natural inclination. So young men, think about this. The Lord has given you a mother with whom you can practice gentleness and tenderness and self-control. If he's given you sisters in your home, what a wonderful opportunity to practice against your nature gentleness and compassion and tenderness. If he's not given you sisters in your house, he's given you sisters here where you can practice gentleness and tenderness and self-control. And see, with our Lord, his compassion was part of his perfection. But as for us men, we have to practice it often because it's, it's contrary to our nature. It's part of our imperfection to be harsh. We need to remember that our Lord's healing of this physical illness is designed to point us to a greater reality, a bigger picture of the eternal healing that we need of the disease of sin. And so even as we deal with one another, male or female, as we deal with one another, when we see a brother or sister in sin, we see them dealing with that greater illness of sin, how do we handle that? Is it our knee-jerk reaction to respond harshly and charitably? Or do we respond to one who is a fellow sinner 
in need of help, in need of rescue. J.C. Ryle says, we need not doubt that we are meant to see here an emblem of the relief that the gospel confers on souls. The experience of many a weary conscience has been exactly like that of this woman with her disease. Many a man has spent sorrowful years in search of peace with God and failed to find it. He has gone to earthly remedies and obtained no relief. He has wearied himself in going from place to place and church to church and has felt, after all, not helped at all, but rather he's grown worse. But at last, he has found rest. And where has he found it? He has found it where this woman found hers in Jesus Christ. He has ceased from his own works. He has stopped looking to his own endeavors and doings for relief. He has come to Christ himself as a humble sinner and committed himself to his mercy. To those who are here in our midst this morning who are not in Christ, who have not yet united to him in the covenant of grace by faith, who have not believed yet in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and turned away from sin, I have to tell you on the authority of the Scripture, you're sick. Whether you've come to that conclusion yourself or not, you are terminally ill. And there is no earthly remedy. You will not find an answer to that condition in anything this world has to offer. You will not find it inside yourself. You will not find it outside of yourself. Unless you touch the Son of God in faith, you will never be healed. You will never heal yourself. And today in your hearing, he says to you, believe in me and go in peace. Be healed of your disease. But you have to believe that. You have to reach out the hand of faith and touch the sun. Will you do that this morning? And to the Christian, to my brothers and sisters, don't we need this reminder too? Don't we need the ongoing voice of the one who can heal us of the sin that remains in us? Don't we need that ongoing comfort of saying, brother, sister, daughter, son, go in peace. Be healed of your disease. We need his ongoing work in us. As I was studying this passage this week, that scene in Pilgrim's Progress came to mind. Hopefully you know it well, the scene in which Christian finally has his burden removed from him. This woman that we see here, here her 12 long years, and of course you know in the scriptures 12 is often a very significant number. It's a measure of fullness. And in the fullness of her suffering, in the fullness of her despair, in the fullness of her hopelessness, she found the one who could heal her. As Bunyan describes this burden of the law and sin being removed at the cross, here's how he describes the moment that Christian comes to this cross. He says, now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall, and that wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. 
He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and up on that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom, a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, with the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and it fell from off his back and it began to tumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, he hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood He stood still a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. And he looked, therefore, and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent waters down his cheeks. And now as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him with, Peace be to thee. So the first said to him, Thy sins be forgiven thee. And the second stripped him of his rags and clothed him with a change of raiment. The third also set a mark on his forehead and gave him a roll with a seal upon it which he bid him look on as he ran and that he should give it in at at the celestial gate. So they went their way. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing. Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in. Till I came hither, what a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss. Must here the burden fall from my back. Must here the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. Amen. And in this woman, healed of her incurable disease, and all of the shame, all of the weakness, all of the fear, all of the difficulty that came with that, all of those things are pointing us to a greater reality, a darker reality of the disease of sin with which all of us are born. And yet, here is the woman who with but a, the man with what a touch heals this woman. The Savior who merely speaks to her and declares her clean. And by doing so, he demonstrates his power and authority. But let's don't miss, he also demonstrates his tender compassion, his gentleness with sinners. He's pointing us to a time and a place where no sickness will exist, no illness, no sorrow. But the matter with Jairus and his daughter, not yet finished, is it? Just just by way of the narration unfolding, his walk with Jairus was interrupted. And now we're going to behold not only a Savior who heals illness, but a Savior who conquers death. Now, I want to think back autobiographic or biographically about this man, Jairus. We're not told anything other than he is a ruler of the synagogue and we're given his name. But let's think back. What we've encountered so far 
in the Gospel of Mark. What do we, just based on what we've been told so far, what might we conclude about a ruler of the local synagogue? Probably not favorable things. In fact, if we turn back to Mark chapter 3, In Mark chapter 3, we're told again, Jesus enters the synagogue, and this is the synagogue there in Capernaum. And a man that was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus. Who's they? The leaders of the synagogue. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, and to save life or to kill, but they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. See, the the, the rulers of the synagogue were the chief agitators, the chief opponents of Jesus. So what do we do with Jairus? Now, it's impossible for us to know the precise role that Jairus may or may not have played in the persecution of Jesus, in the plot against him. Now, we're told regarding the woman who had an issue of blood that she had merely heard the reports of Jesus. But I have no doubt in my mind that Jairus' experience was much more direct. He was an eyewitness to Jesus' power. I think it's what motivated him. And if we think about this, Mark had also told us that the official delegation had come down from Jerusalem, and they declared, they made this formal official declaration that Jesus' power of healing and casting out demons was the power of Beelzebub, that it was demonic. That was the official word. So we said then, anything else from this point is considered disinformation, misinformation. That's the official narrative. So either Jairus was complicit in that original conspiracy and has now, out of desperation, turning to the one that he knows, he knows for certain healed and healed by the power of God. Or he had set by passively while evil men plotted evil things and did nothing. This is the one who comes and makes his appeal to Jesus. Now, what would you do? What would your response be? If the one who had been plotting your destruction, or at least associated with those, at at best, he was associated with those who were plotting your destruction, and he comes and says, my little daughter's at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. I know what I would have done, at least what I would have been tempted to do. Go and heal yourself. You denied my power. You said. You were part of the group who said I healed by the power of Beelzebub. But that's not what Jesus does. He agrees immediately to go. And he went with them. 
And then the scene happens with this woman. And then we pick up again in verse 35. While he was still speaking, meaning still speaking to her, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? I wonder about the social and political implications of this statement. Now, I will freely admit this. This is speculative, okay? But think this through. The messenger comes, probably one of the top advisors from Jairus' household, and says, let's don't trouble the teacher. Your daughter's dead. In other words, why bring this trouble to your house when there's no hope? She's already dead. You were willing to risk your reputation, your livelihood, your position, your authority because your daughter's dying, but she's already dead. Let's don't bring that reproach upon the house. And I think there's a clue because verse 36, but the text tells us, but overhearing. I mean, if this were public news, he would have declared this fully. But he says this as an aside. Out of Jesus' hearing, look, your daughter's already dead. Let's don't bring this. This is risky. Let's don't bring this to the house. And so I think that also flavors how we understand Jesus' response, do not fear, only believe. It is not only, he's not only speaking to his fear as a father who's lost his daughter, but he's speaking to a man in religious authority who's about to out himself as a disciple of Christ. He says, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear what? Certainly the loss of his daughter, but also do not fear your standing before men. Only belief. Now think about this scene when Jesus continues to go with him. And he takes only Peter, James, and John. We see the beginning of the formation of this inner circle. And they come to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And what a scene he uncovers there. This would have been a, a larger house. And no doubt, in the ancient Near East, they often employed professional mourners. They would hire wailing women. And Jesus comes into this scene. Mark just describes it as a commotion. I think that's an understatement. Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping, wailing loudly. And, and he, when he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him. They mocked the Son of God. Now again, here's the opportunity to turn on his heel and walk back out. Respond to their unbelief, their faithlessness, with frankly what it deserved. But he has a bigger purpose in mind, and he takes the father and the mother along with Peter, James, and John. He puts everyone else outside, and he takes them in with him, and he went in where the child was. And once again, 
as we, in a sense, hear the voice of our Savior through his words, he speaks gently, tenderly. He takes her by the hand. He didn't have to do that. It's a dead body. But he touches her. Takes her by the hand and says, little girl, I say to you, arise. The same voice that calmed the wind and the waves, the same voice that commanded thousands of demons to go, the same voice by which he rebuked those who opposed him, that very same voice is now expressed gently, tenderly. Little girl, I say to you, arise. Get up. He alone has the authority to speak life into death. He alone is the giver of life. And Jesus here is fulfilling what God had spoken through the prophet Isaiah. We find in Isaiah 25, verse 8, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Remember our interpretive key here. These literal, actual historical events are also pointing us to something far greater, far deeper than physical death. The Lord Jesus is the one who speaks life, eternal life, to those whom he wishes to have eternal life. All the Father gives to him. Jesus will not lose even one. And he will speak life into that one. And so those, once again, I want to speak to you who are not in Christ this morning. If you are not in Christ, not only do you have a terminal illness, but the scriptures say you are dead in your sins. Spiritually speaking, there's nothing you can do to raise yourself up. There is nothing you can do to cause yourself to live eternally. You are dead in your sins unless and until you respond to the voice that Jesus speaks to you today. He says to you, take my hand and arise. Be born again in my name. Believe on me and you will live. Today in your hearing, he says to you, get up, be healed. Arise, believe in me, and follow me. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we still need this reminder as well, don't we? We need the ongoing voice of the one who can conquer the stench of death that remains in us. Because while your household may not be touched today, by physical death. We all live every day with the stench of spiritual deadness, don't we? For those of you who are parents, you're dealing with this in real time every day with the sins of your children. You're dealing with their deadness. And, and as parents, are you willing to recognize that and call upon the only one who can bring your children new life? It's a reminder that when we grieve the spiritual deadness of those close and dear to us, what we need, what they need, is the voice of Christ to call them to life. I mean, what godly father does not grieve the deadness of unbelief in his daughter? What, what godly mother does not mourn the deadness of sin and rebellion in her son? What's the remedy? We do as Jairus did. 
We go get the Savior and bring him to her. Bring him to him. Dear Christian parent, do you believe in both the power and the compassion of your Redeemer to rescue your son, to rescue your daughter, to call them to life, to ransom them from the stench of death and unbelief? And I've talked with many of you who have grieved over the sin and folly of your own sons and daughters. What do you do with that? Where do, you, where do you take that grief? Where do you take that sorrow? You take it to the same place that Jairus did. At the risk of everything. And he said, will you come and speak life to my son? J.C. Ryle, once again, listen to this, parents. Let us see in this glorious miracle a proof of what Jesus can do for dead souls. He can raise our children from the death of trespasses and sins and make them walk before him in newness of life. He can take our sons and daughters by the hand and say to them, get up and bid them live not to themselves but to him who died for them and rose again. Have we a dead soul in our family? Let us call on the Lord to come and revive him. Let us send to him message after message and entreat him to help. He that came to the support of Jairus is still plenteous in mercy and mighty in power. It's also a reminder to us, an exhortation to us, I hope, as parents, to make sure that our children are under the means of grace that they are hearing the Word of God. The Word of God is bathing them, not only privately in our homes, which we ought to do, but especially to the place where His Word is spoken in His name with authority in the public worship that the saints are gathered together. And we pray that the Spirit will come and do what only the triune God through the person of Christ by the power of His Spirit can do, to breathe life where there is only death. Our Lord will receive, he will heal, he will give new life to all who come to him by faith. We have in the text today a picture of this woman who came superstitiously, weakly, meekly, fearfully before him, and he didn't reject her for all of her faults. He calls her daughter and bids her to follow him. Here's a man who was an enemy of his, or at least part of the enemy, part of a coalition of enemies against him. But when he humbled himself, he came. And he came to the Lord. The Lord did not cast him out. He did not despise him. He demonstrated his power and authority in a way that he could never have even imagined. The one who had sided with his enemies now comes in faith, and the Lord doesn't turn him away. Saints, behold, our Lord Jesus, the Son of God. As we've, as we've witnessed with, with our, our, our spiritual eyes through the text of Scripture, we've witnessed His power and authority. But may we also witness His manner, His compassion towards sinners. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father also. See, sometimes we have this mistaken notion or maybe this sneaky suspicion at the back of our heads that that God the Father only loves us because of the work of Christ. And we have this nagging suspicion that, well, because Jesus died, after all, 
And because he gave his life as a ransom, the father now is sort of forced. He's obligated to love you, to be gracious towards me. But you know, when we think that way, we have it backwards. We have it all upside down. Scriptures tell us, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. It was out of the overflow of the father's eternal love for his people that he sent his son. God is not under compulsion because of the work of Christ. The work of Christ came because of the God's eternal love. So when you see the Lord Jesus Christ speaking with words of tenderness and affection and gentleness and patience to sinners, no. No, that is the character of your God. The character of your triune God speaking to and ministering to and calling you as well. Amen? Let's pray together. Oh God, our Father, we pray that you will send your Spirit to help us to see you as you have revealed yourself to us in your Word. Holy Spirit, help us to to see in our Savior a kindness, a gentleness, a tenderness, a compassion towards sinners. And to see how grace abounds to the humble. How in Him alone we have the words of healing, the words of living, Lord, will you comfort us in both our physical afflictions and in the spiritual afflictions that remain. Grant to us grace and power to deal with the sin that remains in us. Cause us to fall at the feet of the Lord Jesus, desiring a touch from him sanctify us, to heal us of that sin that remains. Father, help us to seek out the power of the living Christ to speak words of life to those near to us who remain dead in sin. Help us to be faithful as as brothers and sisters, as husbands and wives, as parents, as children, to plead with you for life that only you can give, eternal life. Help us to persevere in praying for our neighbors, our community, our sons and daughters, our parents, our brothers and sisters our co-workers, knowing that unless you bring them to life, they will never live. Comfort us with these words. Convict us of our sin. Encourage us with the, the, the only and certain remedy that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in him that we pray.